Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys episode 176, Billie Holiday's New York City. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys are brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobook entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. For a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash boweryboys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a sequel show of sorts. Now, a couple years back, some of you may remember, I released a show called Mark Twain's New York, which was a tour of the city in the late 19th century as seen through the activities of Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. This show is kind of a follow-up to that, but this time we're headed to the mid-20th century with one of the greatest vocalists in American popular music, Billie Holiday. Later this year, in April 2015, we'll celebrate her 100th birthday. Holiday's impact upon American music is profound, changing the way vocalists interpret music, bringing out extraordinary subtlety and richness beyond the lyrics and instrumentation. And so much of what she did, so much of her accomplishments were within a set of important Manhattan music venues from Midtown to Harlem. Hers is the story of New York's own jazz legacy. But although she became an icon, a superstar, it was not an easy life for her, with early years of prostitution and later ones distracted and later defeated by drugs and alcohol. Now, like Mr. Mark Twain, Billie Holiday is only a stage name, borrowed from moments and ambitions from her own past. The real story of Billie Holiday is full of drama and paradox, moments of great sadness, but others of pure joy, here within the midst of New York City's own history in the making. Obviously, I cannot tell the story without music, so prepare for an onslaught of some of the greatest jazz vocals in history, punctuated with eight or ten actual addresses you can visit, a GPS history of sorts. This story of Billie Holiday's New York begins at Old Pennsylvania Station, sometime in 1929, and with a teenage girl named Eleonora Fagan. I forget to do those little ordinary things that everyone ought to do. I'm living in a kind of daydream. I'm happy as a queen and foolish though it may seem to me. Everything 
the moments go till I'm near to you. The early years of Billie Holiday are a bit shrouded in mystery, and what we do know of these years makes for a rather bleak tale. Eleanora Fagan, the girl who would grow up to become one of America's most famous singers, was born in Philadelphia on April 7, 1915, but her early years were spent in Baltimore, Maryland. She lived with relatives, her mother, Sadie, frequently out of town for work, and her father, Clarence Holiday, a name who she would later take professionally, Well, he was seldom in the picture at this time. Eleanora had a life of few benefits, sorely unsupervised, and often truant from school. She was thrown into a Catholic reform school at age nine and put there again after she was assaulted and raped by a neighbor at age 11. A little sunshine finally comes into the story here when she moves to the Baltimore Port neighborhood of Fells Point, a rundown and dilapidated area in the 1920s. It was here that Eleanora, who was barely 13 or 14 years old at the time, when she finally began singing for money in speakeasies, movie theaters, churches, and even the local brothel, which just happened to own a Victrola. It was here that she heard the records of Louis Armstrong, a very young recording artist at this time, and the great blues singer Bessie Smith, who was actually at the end of her own recording career. When Eleanora would eventually sing professionally, she would venture away from the blues, but she would take away certain lessons from Smith's rough, world-weary delivery. Here's a little bit of Bessie Smith for comparison. Now listen, honey, while I say, how can you tell me that you're going away? Don't say that we must In 1929, Eleanor's mother found lodging in Harlem and sent for her daughter, who then took the train and eventually arrived at Penn Station, disoriented and alone. Midtown Manhattan in 1929 was entering an era of great transformation. They'd begun building the Chrysler Building by this time, and the Empire State Building was only one year away. One street in Midtown would come to prove vitally important to the career of Billie Holiday, but that was still a few years away. Eleanor arrived in Harlem, where her mother had arranged for her to stay at 151 West 140th Street. This, unfortunately, was a house of ill repute, as they say, a brothel owned by Florence Williams, in Billy's own words, quote, the biggest madam in Harlem, unquote. Again, the girl had few options and soon began working for Florence. She actually talks about this in the book Lady Sings the Blues, quote, I thought I was a real hip kitty. In a matter of days, I had my chance to become a strictly $20 call girl, and I took it, unquote. But the brothel was raided a few months later, and Eleanor was taken down for sentencing to Jefferson Market Courthouse. 
Today, the Jefferson Market, with its dramatic medieval-looking turret, is one of the most recognizable buildings in the West Village. It served as a courthouse until 1945. Today, it holds a branch of the New York Public Library. But it was from here that poor Eleonora was banished to a terrible fate that year, the workhouses of Welfare Island. Now, this island in the East River was once known as Blackwell's Island, the destination spot for prisons, hospitals, quarantines, and other undesirable services for the city. In 1921, it was renamed by the city to Welfare Island, remaining that way until 1971 when it was again changed, named for Franklin D. Roosevelt. Eleonora would spend a dreadful 100 days here, dodging fights, sexual assaults, and nightly visits from rats. Now, I don't know if she was allowed to sing away some of her time here inside Welfare Island, but when she got out, I think she quickly realized that this was going to be her best shot at employment. There were very few options for an uneducated black girl at this time. She could take low-paying and demeaning work as a maid, or she could return back to that life of crime. But she had, and she knew she had, an extraordinary gift, and she would use it to lift herself up out of these desperate situations. Immediately out of Welfare Island, she sought out several small music gigs and speakeasies like The Grey Dawn in Jamaica, Queens, and even performed at the Elks Club in Brooklyn. Now, fortunately, she would return back to Harlem, and this is the late 1920s, a neighborhood experiencing an influx of new black residents from the South and a renaissance of black art, music, and literature. Having this concentrated area of musicians in particular inspired a unique set of speakeasies and clubs along 133rd Street, often operated by the mob, but places where jazz music flourished. While the performers were mostly black, many clubs here catered only to white patrons, these downtown audiences that dabbled in the saucy so-called dangerous sounds of black music. Some of these people called this area Jungle Alley. The performers called it simply The Street. Eleonora got her first job at The Nest, 169 West 133rd Street. Shortly thereafter, across the street at a place called Pod and Jerry's. Singing it around like 2 or 3 in the morning, working for tips, and hoofing it from table to table. Experimenting with her voice, understanding what captivated an audience, learning to interact with anyone from gangsters, randy young men, even movie stars. She shook off her ragged appearance, decided that she only wanted to present herself in a more elegant fashion, recognized that a little glamour, a fancy dress or two, would also help sell some of these songs. It was at this time that she took her stage name, Billy, from a white silent film actress named Billy Dove, and of course Holiday from her father. What she learned to do is to style music, using her vocals in much the same way as a jazz instrumentalist. She stepped back from the precise hit-every-note style of her predecessors and discovered ways of dramatizing music with what some would call a slurred or sauntering tone, Perhaps, you know, just one step, one beat behind where a traditional singer would have come in. You can hear a little bit of that in one of her later big hits, God Bless the Child. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may. 
We're now at the beginning of the Great Depression, at the tail end of Prohibition. People are drinking their blues away, and here comes a young woman who can express heartache and frustration or off-limits titillation, all of that, all in a single song. Billy sang all along the street and these other places in Harlem, eventually working her way up into bigger clubs like Small's Paradise at 135th Street and the Alhambra Ballroom. She was discovered in 1933 at a little club called Cavans down at West 132nd Street, discovered by a man named John Hammond, a member of the Vanderbilt family, a rebellious member, I'm assuming, who had just dropped out of Yale to focus on music. He would become one of the most important music producers of the 20th century, especially the mid-20th century here. Later, he would bring many of his famous friends to come here, Billie Holiday. Many famous actors, including Elsa Lanchester, came one. So this is funny. That's right. The actress who played the Bride of Frankenstein was an early fan of Billie Holiday. On November 27, 1933, Billie headed down to 55 Fifth Avenue Studios to make her first recordings for Columbia Records with Benny Goodman and his orchestra. Now, the building where that studio was at is still there at 5th Avenue and 12th Street, just a few blocks up from Washington Square. Today, it's the home of the Cordozo School of Law. But in 1933, this was the place she recorded her first two songs, Your Mother's Son-in-Law and Riffin' the Scotch. I jumped out of the frying pan and right into the fire When I lost me a cheating man and got a no-count lie now in the mid-1930s, the 18th Amendment has been repealed, thank goodness, and Americans can now drink again. Unfortunately, however, this spelled an end to much of the scene up here in the 133rd Street jazz world. The speakeasies became legit, and the white crowds could now open jazz clubs downtown. Places like the Cotton Club and Connie's Inn opened separate locations in Midtown. In particular, a cluster of music clubs would soon open on or around the area of 52nd Street between 5th and 7th Avenues, very near, by the way, to the still-under-construction Rockefeller Center. Now, this street would become known as Swing Street, and Billy would craft many of her greatest moments in the smoke-filled bars here. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it was also around this time that she garnered the nickname Lady Day, given to her by her lifelong friend, saxophonist Lester Young. She, of course, returned the favor by giving him his lifelong nickname, Prez. In 1935, she would perform on her biggest stage yet, the Apollo Theater, to an audience of 2,000 people. As she would later recollect, quote, I had a cheap white satin dress on and my knees were shaking so bad the people didn't know whether I was going to dance or sing. In most cases, she would still be showcased as part of a larger jazz ensemble. She kept recording cuts mostly with Teddy Wilson and his orchestra, and in 1937, she began touring, first with Count Basie, then with Artie Shaw and his orchestra. 
But once she left New York, she came up immediately against the racial and gender prejudices of the day. And it cut both ways. When Basie's orchestra toured Detroit, Billy was forced to darken her skin tone with grease paint as it appeared under the light that she was too Caucasian. Things, of course, were much worse touring with Artie Shaw because she was the first black woman to tour with an all-white orchestra. With Basie's troupe, the racism was thrown at them collectively, but on Artie's tour, much of the racism was aimed squarely at her, and she did not even need to leave New York to experience this. In the late 1930s, most hotels in New York City had strict segregation policies. Even hotels in Harlem, like the Hotel Teresa, were owned by white operators and catered to white guests. But in the big band era, these large ensembles often played in ballrooms of such hotels like these. This is precisely the situation which occurred on October 26, 1938, at the Blue Room in the Lincoln Hotel, that is at 8th Avenue and 45th Street. Today, that is called the Row NYC Hotel, I believe that's the name. Some of you, of course, may know this as the Old Milford Hotel. There's a big, gigantic M at the top of the hotel. You, you may definitely know that, at least. And yes, this hotel was named for Abraham Lincoln. And yes, on that October evening, the manager asked Artie Shaw to tell Billie Holiday to use the freight elevator as they did not want any guests to think that a black woman was staying there. As Billy would later say to the press, quote, I was billed next to Artie himself, but was never allowed to visit the bar or the dining room, unquote. She was not even allowed to sing on Artie Shaw's radio broadcast, which occurred here at the hotel because of protests from advertisers. But a truly positive life-changing experience was just around the corner. She was getting an ensemble together to play at a new spot in a different area of town. Downtown, in Greenwich Village, a different kind of music scene was developing here, where jazz music and uptown sounds were being infused with white bohemian life. This would flourish by the 1950s, of course, in places like the Village Vanguard and the Village Gate. In December of 1938, Entrepreneur Barney Josephson opened a hotspot in a basement at 1 Sheridan Square. Now, for those mapping this out in your head, in association to other landmarks, this spot is today just around the corner from the Stonewall Inn. Today at 1 Sheridan Square, the Axis Theater Company occupies the space. But in 1938, it became Cafe Society, a venue specifically designed to mix black and white audiences. The club's name, Cafe Society, was actually a term for the glamorous, rich white set who were often photographed at ritzy cafes uptown. So, yeah, they were obviously poking fun at that with this particular club. In fact, the doorman at the Cafe Society wore a tattered top hat and white gloves with fingertips ripped off. That's some true village style here. The novelty of all this, of course, brought a lot of attention to Cafe Society, as did its roster of progressive celebrities who would stop by. And all of this, of course, brought some focus to Billie Holiday. At the same moment that many of her recordings that she was doing were now being listened to across the country. In April of 1939, a Jewish songwriter named Abel Mirapol came in and asked Josephson if there happened to be a singer that might be able to perform a new song of his, one that was a very serious politically focused song about racism in the South. He obviously offered it to one of his headlining stars. If you think it's okay, man, I'll do it. 
said Billy. The song was a stark and graphic song about the lynching of black men in the South. On the night of its very first performance, there was to be no encore. No waiter was allowed to serve drinks. The room was to be completely dark. And the stage lights were brought down to a narrow stream of light upon Billy's face as she began to sing. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. She would perform the song Strange Fruit for the remainder of her life, a rare political message in a career mostly comprised of swing and torch songs. She lasted at Cafe Society for another nine months before taking the song and moving on to a new phase in her career as one of America's leading vocalists. But a bit of innocence was left behind as well for the 1940s, would bring her into an international spotlight and foster, unfortunately, a fierce drug dependency that would eventually destroy her. We'll get into those hectic, gloomy years after the commercial break. And On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. (laughs) 
The pianist Marion McPartland once said of Swing Street, quote, On 52nd Street, you could walk through the history of jazz. In several hours, nursing a few drinks, you could travel musically from New Orleans up to Harlem and Bop. It was a street of neon signs perched above the basements of old brownstones, twisted and distorted into the shapes of small nightclubs. Billie Holiday played most of these places during the mid and late 1940s. The Onyx Club, Kelly's Stable, The Famous Door, and Club Downbeat. She lived the life of a night owl, eyes stinging from smoke-filled bars, drinking continuously. Her favorite concoction, actually, was a mixture of cream de menthe and brandy. In fact, she drank it so much that late in her career, her manager specified in contracts with venues that she not be served these specific drinks. She enjoyed smoking marijuana. In fact, in her early years, it was still legal to do so in the state of New York. It was the way to bond with the band out back in the alley between sets. She was now signed to Decca Records, jet-setting between Los Angeles and New York, recording some of her biggest songs like Don't Explain and Lover Man. She became the biggest star on 52nd Street, next to Nat King Cole and Coleman Hawkins. But fans would have clearly noticed a startling change in her offstage demeanor by the time she got to the Onyx. At some point in the 1940s, she had begun turning to heroin, even shooting it up between shows. A huge post-war wave of heroin through the so-called French Connection, operated by Corsican Organized Crime Syndicate, fed the drug into the United States, in particular into Harlem, starting in the late 1940s, a drug epidemic that would not subside until the early 70s. Thousands were soon drawn to this addictive drug that became associated with several New York subcultures. This is not to justify Billie Holiday's usage, or for that matter, the dozens of musicians from Miles Davis to Kurt Cobain who have succumbed to the addiction since then. But this is only to show the access she might have had to a whole community of users. It was visible and readily available. There was no looking back in her life. The more famous she got, the more involved with drugs she seemed to get. Many of the men in her life helped cover up her drug abuse while living off some of her money in the process. By 1950, swing and the big band sound were being replaced with bebop, rhythm and blues, and more avant-garde jazz. Billie Holiday was now considered something of a pop star and a chanteuse, and was becoming known for some of her drug-fueled eccentricities. The pianist Bobby Tucker performed with her at the club Downbeat at 66 West 52nd Street and said, quote, We never did a show before midnight. I would take the train out of Morristown, the tube out of Hoboken, the D train out of 34th Street, and walk into the Downbeat every night at exactly 28 minutes to 10. The show was supposed to go on between 9.30 and 10. But what's wrong? Where's Lady? They're knocking on her door, and she's saying, Just a minute, just a minute for two and a half hours, unquote. And yet still she could dazzle audiences, as she did in 1946 at the legendary venue Town Hall, 123 West 43rd Street. I've actually seen this referred to, believe it or not, as Billy's very first solo show. Apparently energized by this new type of venue, now performing on a big stage as a superstar, the show is considered a major triumph in her career. From the city that hurts and mocks I'm standing alone 
by the desolate docks in the still and the chill of the night I see the horizon the great unknown my heart has an ache it's as heavy as stone will the dawn coming on make it light I cover the waterfront I'm watching the sea will the one I love be coming back to me on May 16 1947 she was arrested at the Grampian Hotel an old junkies hotel in Harlem at 182 St. Nicholas Avenue. She was charged with narcotics possession and was sent away to Alderson Federal Prison Camp in West Virginia. Now, you may know this charming place today by its recent nickname, Camp Cupcake, and a recent inmate from 2005, Martha Stewart. When Billy got out in March the following year, she found herself in a very unfortunate situation. Her cabaret card had been revoked, preventing her from performing in any place that sold liquor, which was basically any place that she performed. The whole idea of the New York cabaret card was considered demeaning, and they were often taken away from performers for very bizarre, often superfluous reasons. The whole system was eventually abolished in 1967, partially thanks to Frank Sinatra, who refused to play in New York cabarets due to the very existence of these cabaret cards. Well, a few days after being released from prison and after returning to New York, Billie Holiday played two of her greatest concerts and in a place that didn't need a cabaret card, Carnegie Hall. Perhaps due to a renewed interest by the public, there were obviously some curiosity seekers in the crowd, the concert was sold out weeks in advance and additional seats were placed in the aisle, and even 600 people sat on the stage behind her while she performed. That first night, March 27, 1948, she sang 21 songs and performed six different encores. Many people claim that this was the greatest concert she ever gave. Now, I want to mention one more performance from 1948 because it is totally extraordinary. Now, for the debut of a new Hollywood film called Key Largo, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, the exhibitors at the Warner Strand Theater, Broadway and 47th Street in Times Square, they had a special treat in store for filmgoers at its premiere on July 16th. For th- on that day and for six weeks afterwards, the Strand presented the film on an exhaustive bill of music and comedy, featuring two of the biggest stars in jazz music reunited again, Count Basie and Billie Holiday. So basically, these two jazz greats opened for Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. That's In comparison today, we sit through commercials when we go to the movies. Oh, and the ticket price back then was probably around 50 cents. In the 1950s, we find Lady Day at the height of her claim with audiences and performers alike, even as her health further spiraled downwards. She spent a considerable time outside of New York at this time, in Los Angeles, and actually on two different European tours. Long play albums, or LPs, were now in vogue, at least since 1948, and we finally get a few full-length albums from her. 
There's a terrific story in that book by Donald Cook of a recording session of the album Lady in Satin, which is a sumptuous album in the big room, big string style of the day. They were trying to come up with a final song to record for the record. So she said, let's go to the colony. The Colony Record Shop, located in the Brill Building at 49th Street and Broadway, is a legendary record store and music shop. Opening in 1948, the same year as the very first LP, by the way, and famous for its exhaustive collection of records and sheet music. So that evening, she arrived at the store, plummets herself into the stacks, cursing people out. And finally, finally, she pulls from the stacks and finally slicks the song, You've Changed. This is the version of that song that appeared on that album. You've changed That sparkle in your eyes is gone Your smile is just a careless yawn You're breaking my heart You've changed by the way, Colony Records finally closed its doors in 2012. I will not even tell you what is there now. I will just point it out to you and you can look it up and choose to be sad yourself. Now, in the year that that album was recorded, in 1958, Frank Sinatra said, quote, With few exceptions, every major pop singer in the United States during her generation has been touched in some way by her genius. It is Billie Holiday who was and still remains the greatest single musical influence on me. Lady Day is unquestionably the most important influence on American popular singing of the last 20 years, unquote. Sinatra, by the way, was actually born the same year as Billie Holiday, so this year also celebrates the centennial anniversary. Now, I forgot to mention Lady Sings the Blues, her famous autobiography that was published in 1956. It was co-written by a New York Post writer named William Dufty. He would actually end up co-writing slash ghost authoring, if you will, books for actors like Edward G. Robinson and Gloria Swanson, who actually then he later married. We don't read Lady Sings the Blues for the facts, I'm afraid, because there are some whoppers in there, but it does present this beautiful, feisty, and fierce storytelling voice. And I think you could imagine her telling these stories, whatever the actual veracity of them. She even gave two concerts at Carnegie Hall in support of the book. Even up to the end here, she continued to sing live. In the summer of 1957, she performed in a jazz festival in Central Park. One evening, she snuck down and performed late at the Five Spot Cafe on the Bowery in defiance of that whole cabaret card thing. On May 25, 1959, she appeared at a benefit concert to help keep open a, a theater in today's East Village. The theater, the Phoenix Theater, was located at 2nd Avenue and 12th Street. The benefit was partially successful. The Phoenix would become, in fact, one of the first off-Broadway playhouses of the early 1960s. But Billy's performance at this benefit, well, it was to be her last. On May 31st, she collapsed in her apartment. She was taken to Knickerbocker Hospital. That's right. She was taken to the Nick on 131st Street. But then they promptly sent her to another hospital, to the Metropolitan in East Harlem, due perhaps to her advanced conditions associated with cirrhosis of the liver. And it was at the Metropolitan at 3 in the morning on July 17th 
that Billie Holiday passed away at age 44. buried in the Bronx with her mother Sadie at the St. Raymond's Cemetery in Throg's Neck, pretty close to the Whitestone Bridge, actually. Some morbid trivia. If you happen to go to St. Raymond's to pay your respects to Lady Day, you can also stop by and see the burial spot of Mary Mallon, a.k.a. Typhoid Mary. Now, for more information on the life of Billie Holiday, there's several biographies out on her. Of course, you can watch the film Lady Sings the Blues starring Diana Ross, which bears little resemblance to the actual story of her life. But I kind of think that the best biography that Billie Holiday has is her own music. I feel like just listening to the songs, even interpreting other people's songs her story and the the life that she had, I think, comes through very dramatically. You would not do wrong to just spend a wonderful Friday night just listening to old Billie Holiday records and imagining some of the events and places that I talked about in this show. So thank you very much for listening to my my attempt at the wonderful, weird, and tragic life of the former Eleanor Fagan. I used several music cues in this episode. For more information on those songs and where you can get them, I'll have more information on where you can find those songs at the very, very end of the podcast. I have a big announcement for Bowery Boys fans. We have a brand new website, a brand new URL. It's BoweryBoysHistory.com. So that's there's no New York in the actual name of our new blog. It's Bowery Boys History. All this content from the old blog will still be there, but now we have a more dynamic layout, bigger pictures. Should be a friendlier, easier kind of website to use. It doesn't look like it's from you know 2006, which is what the other website looked like. You can check out the Barry Boys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And who knows what other platforms we'll find in 2015. So Tom will be back to join me for a regular show in February. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you for joining me on this journey to celebrate the life of Billie Holiday. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. So the songs that you heard during the show were as follows. The Very Thought of You by Billie Holiday. After You're Gone by Bessie Smith. Them Their Eyes by Louis Armstrong. And then the rest are by Billie Holiday. God Bless the Child. Riffin' the Scotch. Strange Fruit. When a Woman Loves a Man. You've Changed. And Solitude. All of those, I believe, are available on iTunes and wherever you get music. Most of those songs are courtesy Sony Music Entertainment, except for The Strange Fruit, which you can get on releases by Universal Music.